We're going to read our scripture reading, John 3, 16 and 17. The scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Verse 17 is my favorite. It says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, The God Who Restores. The God Who Restores. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our, our, our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So we're going to jump to a different chapter in the book of John. John chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 1. John chapter 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. This caused a problem for Jesus. As Jesus began to grow, the scripture tells us that when the Pharisees and Sadducees realized that Jesus was baptizing more uh, and making more disciples than John the Baptist, they made up in their minds to kill him. As Jesus' crowds grew, when people found out where Jesus was, crowds naturally uh, were magnetized towards him. They came looking for Christ, and Jesus would sit in patience. He would sit uh, in love, and he would uh, deal with the crowds. He would deal with their infirmities. He would deal with their pain, and Jesus taught them the truths, the everlasting truths of his Father's kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees could not stand this. And let me say this. I'll inject this here. Let me tell you something. I was telling your president this this week. NCU will be under attack. I'm going to say it again. This school will be under attack. And let me, let me be clear. It will be under attack from without and within. When you have an institution that is holding up the standards of God, satanic agencies will move on unconverted hearts to work against that institution. I hope you guys understand what I'm about to tell you. You are not simply at another college or university. You are at a place that is a, a ground zero for spiritual warfare. And the fight that must first be fought is the fight of the spiritual realm. It is a fight of prayer and fasting. It is a fight of commitment to Christ because if you think man will rescue you, you're mistaken. If you lift up Jesus, the devil is going to come against you. Now he's going to use people to do it. But you got to be careful not to get mad at the people because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not the people you need to worry about. It's the demons behind them. 
And if you pray and call on the name of Jesus and claim his blood, the demons become impotent. They have no power. All the obia in Jamaica cannot move, not one stone against this place. So verse 3, the inevitable attack begins. John chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. The Bible makes it clear. It says, in the very act. Can you imagine? Jesus is giving a Sabbath school lesson at the temple. He's teaching the people about his father and his kingdom and his enemies so desperate to destroy him. Take a woman, probably still unclothed, drag her through the streets of Jerusalem from a house where they probably set the trap to have her caught in. Because many of the very men uh, bringing her had probably been with her in an ungodly way. And as they drag her through the streets of Jerusalem, they take her and looking at Jesus, imparting the precious eternal truths of the kingdom, they take this woman and throw her down like a bag of dirty laundry into the midst of this crowd. They say, listen, master, that's even a, 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 a cynical statement. Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. The enemies of Christ sought to use the immorality of his day against him. Let me submit to you, we talked about it this week. We talked about it specifically Sunday night and Wednesday night. We talked about the immorality of this age. I, I explained to you on Sunday night that the way the devil caused the children of Israel not to enter the promised land when they were supposed to is that he sent of the, of the, of the, of the Midianites, he sent from King uh, Balak, he sent the women, and it was sexual sin because he brought down the men of Israel, and before long, they were worshiping idols and engaged in temple prostitution. Sexual sin, let me say it again, sexual sin is literally... The way that the devil is going to try to keep many of us out of the kingdom today. This story is critical. The story of the woman caught in the act of adultery is literally a prophetic story. I've heard people try and uh, uh, run her parallel with a woman is a church and this is the condition of Laodicea. And you can try and do that if you want. But I will say this. It is one that must be applied to end time events. If you understand what Jesus does for this woman, you can understand what he's going to do for you in these end times. So we see in a survey, 81% of Americans see declining morality in the United States. America has changed so drastically since when I was a child and born and raised there. America is a totally different place. Some of the arguments that they're making on simple issues of gender and, and sex are, are so preposterous that even 10 years ago would have been laughed out of most of public school systems. Today, they are, are, they are elevated. 
One of the reasons for this is that in the United States, marriage has seen a drastic decline. The institution of marriage is not respected. It is not held up. It is, it is scoffed and laughed at. People are quick to live together, but don't want to commit to actually being together. In fact, when you even look at the condition of children, this is, if you go back to the 90s, only one out of 10 boys or girls, young men or young women, would have had any kind of sex. You fast forward to just 20 years later, and this is still 10 years ago, and it goes to one in five women and one in four men. We have watched a deep decline in societal morality in the West specifically. But I, I have to submit that even in countries that are considered developing countries, we are watching an erosion of family, an elevation of immorality. In fact, the music, the culture of many places, and Jamaica, unfortunately, has not been untouched by this. The music says that the culture has been corrupted by the enemy. I told you this Wednesday night, I showed you this slide, that you cannot violate the law of God without consequence. This is the uptick. In fact, I, I think I mentioned to you that in the, in the early 1980s, what they told us when as AIDS popped on the scene and, and by, the, by, the, by the early 1990s, there was, a, there was a, a way that they decided they would do things. And they said, what we'll do is we'll just pass out more condoms. We'll tell kids it's okay to masturbate. We'll, we'll tell them it's okay to watch pornography. And if we do that, sexual health will improve in the country. Instead, the more condoms they passed out, the higher the sexually transmitted disease rate went. You cannot escape the consequences of breaking the law of God. In fact, Paul, in his prophetic statement of 2 Timothy chapter 3, says this, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Why will it come? Look at how this describes our society today. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Look at this. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce. Look at the last one. Despisers of those that are good. One of the signs of the end is that those who would do good and follow God will be despised. Men will be traitors. They'll be high-minded. They'll be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Watch this. They will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Paul warns Timothy in his message to the last generation. Paul warns, warns Timothy that when they have this form of godliness, that they will not really be true. They will have the form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof, which is the Holy Spirit. Paul says when you see this, from those folk, turn away. And you know what some of us do instead? We turn towards them. Instead of turning away from the witchcraft of Beyonce, we turn towards it. The occult in the movies. We turn towards it. These people want you to believe they're good because they've come up with these new ways to be good and social justice and black power. 
They've come up with all these ways to try and be good. They've created, creating a, a new paradigm of, mor of morality so that you can feel morally right when you're not right with God. Says that they will have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof from such turn away. Then look at how Paul turns this thing. He says in verse 6, For of this sort are they, watch this, they creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. And verse 7 is the kicker. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have people who have more education and are more foolish than ever. Common sense is no longer common. I mean, I'm listening to stuff happening in America, and you sit and you look and you scratch your head. In one, I thought this was a joke. I thought it was a political joke. They were saying that the kids in school, there are kids in American public schools now that identify as cats. Yeah, like a feline. I, I, don't, I don't see too much cats in Jamaica. But like a cat. And they said that they don't want to have to use the toilet. And I thought it was a joke. I looked it up, and it was a school district where they brought in litter boxes so that the child could pretend to be a cat. That child don't need a litter box. They need psychiatric help. One man spent $14,000, somebody sent me the video, $14,000 to buy a suit that makes him look like a dog. Some of y'all saw the video. And he dressed up like a dog, and he's in the park, and somebody have him on a leash, and he's trying to play with the other dog. And when the other dog come up and smell him, let's take off running. So that's not a right type of dog there. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They took this woman, threw her down in front of Jesus. Bible says in John 8 and verse 3, and the scribes brought her, threw her down. She was taken in the act of adultery, in the very act. Verse 5 says, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Ha, this was a trick question. They were always trying to trick Jesus. But the one thing you realize about Jesus is Jesus was very sharp. He was quick. He knew what they were doing. He could sense their hypocrisy. They came, and this is what this was their game. Let me just show, tell you what they were trying to do. So what they did is they took the woman naked, threw her down into the crowd. She, she was caught in the very act. There were more than two witnesses. All of the men that brought her were witnesses. You have to ask the tough question, where's the man she was with? He should have been thrown down too, which tells you it was actually just a trap. They weren't looking for justice. They weren't trying to honor the law of God. They were trying to trick the Son of God. And when they threw her down in front of uh, the crowd, they asked Jesus this question because what they wanted was for Jesus to say, you know what, I believe in grace and mercy. Let this woman free. And then they would say, oh, he voids the law of Moses. If he said, go ahead and stone her, they would say, see, he's just as exacting as us. He's no Messiah. They had set a trap. What sayest thou? And, and let me tell you something. John, John is a great writer. John, in verse 6, he says this. This they said, tempting him, that they, that they might have to accuse him. 
And look at how Jesus responds. The Bible says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Wow. That verse is pregnant with all kinds of instruction. First of all, when your enemies come against you, one of the worst things you can do is give them audience. Too many of you are listening to your critics, allowing them to make you look at yourself different. They, if they have a problem, that's their problem. Jesus didn't go into an argument with them, which some of us would do. You know, in America, they say, I was going to give them a piece of my mind. I told one of my patients, you need every piece of your mind you got left. You better stop giving it away to everybody makes you upset. Jesus instead, watch this. He stoops down, the scripture says, on the dirty ground, sandy ground, and Jesus takes his finger and begins to write on the ground as if he never heard what they said. Now, huh, there are three times the Bible records that God writes. How many times? Three times the Bible says that God writes. Let's go through all three of them. The first time that God writes is back in the book of Exodus, chapter 31 and verse 18. The Bible says, God gave unto us Moses when he had made an end of all communing with him on Mount Sinai. God gave to Moses two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with what? Written with the finger of God. Powerful. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he wrote it himself. When people tell you the law is done away with, you don't have to keep the Sabbath, understand that the, the law that was done away with was not written by the finger of God. It was the handwriting of ordinances which Moses wrote. The law of God was not only written with God's finger, it was written in stone. Stone all by itself says that this was permanent. You cannot erase stone. You can't hit the backspace button on stone. Can't undo stone. He wrote it in stone with his own finger because God's law is immutable, unchangeable. It is eternal. God's law will last forever. The second time that God writes is found in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 5, it says, in verse 23 through 25 says, The God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the writing that was written, meany, meany, tekel, ufarsin. that powerful? When you look at it, a hand comes out. Now remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was such a powerful missionary in the, in, in the house of the king that before it was all over, Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian. The reason this judgment seems harsh but is accurately right is because uh, this uh, um, um, uh, son, grandson of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, this grandson was guilty because he was raised in a house where he knew the truth of God. And he was, so he was guilty. The judgment is as hard as it is because he failed 
to follow the teachings his grandfather laid down. So as he's partying and getting drunk and the music is playing and the women are dancing and he thinks there's nothing to worry about, out of nowhere appears a hand on the plaster over against the wall and in the plaster is written meeny meeny tikul ufarsim and it means God has weighed you in the balances and you are found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The first time God writes, he writes the law, the Ten Commandment in stone. The second time he writes, he writes judgment based on those commandments in plaster. Not as permanent as stone. But can you imagine, the Bible says that when uh, uh, the king saw this, his loins were loosed. A man messed up himself when he saw the hand of God appear. This is the second time God wrote. But the third time that God wrote is in the story we're in. When Jesus is confronted by what is happening, Jesus begins to write in the sand. John 8 and verse 7 says this. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, look at what Jesus says unto these crooked men. He that is without sin among you, let him what? First cast a stone at her. Now he doesn't mean here that you have to be sinfully perfect to make any sort of judgment. But what he was doing was calling them out on the carpet. He lifts himself up as they keep antagonizing him. Jesus, what do you say? What should be done to her? He gets up and he says, whichever one of you is without sin, I want you to throw the first stone. And then look what he does. And then in verse 8, the Bible says, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Ha. You see, Jesus May have some, somebody said, I, I, I read a book once and they said, one of the things Jesus may have written on the ground is Hosea 4 and verse 14. He may have written, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Let me say this here. Let me just stick a pin. If the church is going to be what it is called to be, the men must stand up and be con committed and convicted and converted. We can't have men who are in leadership in church, have membership in church, and they're married and they've got a sweetie on the side. That is abomination. You'd call out a man if a man lays with a man and you say that that man is wicked. But you are just as wicked, maybe worse wicked, if you have a woman on the side and claim to be a Christian and you know the truth of the scripture. And somebody told me, I, I don't know if it's true, but somebody told me that, 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 that there's a culture here where men think they can have a woman on the side. This is why the scripture says, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Let me tell you something. We have to be praying at all times for our pastors and elders. 
We've got to be praying for the theology students at this school because if Satan can give them the virus of sexual iniquity, if he can pass upon them the contagion uh, of immorality, if he can get them caught up in these addictions, he can make them powerless for the cause of God. When you are living in sin, it's difficult to preach against sin. And the blessings of God will not fall on a church where the priests of the home and the, and the heads of the temple are, are, are corrupted in the flesh through fornication. Won't happen. First time God wrote, he wrote in stone. The Ten Commandments are per permanent. The second time God writes, he writes in plaster. It's judgment. But the Medes and Persians would have destroyed the place afterwards. The third time God writes, he writes the sins of men in the sand. So that with just the brush stroke of his foot, he could wipe it away. I want you to get that the three time God writes tells you his attitudes toward you. He expects you to honor his law. He will judge you based on that law. But if you slip up and sin, he's willing to write it where it can be easily erased. Look at verse 9. John 8 and verse 9 says this, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. When they looked down and looked over Jesus' shoulder, and he started saying, mm -hmm, Brother so-and-so. You were with this one at this time. Start backsliding like Michael Jackson. Some of y'all too young for that, huh? Started backing out when they looked over and saw that the sin they were involved with was being cataloged by the all-knowing mind of Christ. Everybody started to disappear. They began to slip out. They began to run away because they did not want their sin revealed. They wanted to reveal her sin, but wanted to hide their own. They started to slip out. Until, the Bible says, even unto the last. There was not a man left. In fact, the next verse, when you read the next verse, John 8 and verse, uh, the, the end of that verse, it says, and, John, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What I find interesting is the Bible doesn't even say the disciples were still around. You see Peter and the rest of them like, listen, if they run it, maybe we should run too. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. It was just the two of them left just the two of them all alone. Let me tell you something. If you have been caught in sin, if sin has trapped you, if it has made you a slave and created a bondage for you, the best place you can find yourself is alone with Jesus. The best thing can happen to you if you're a sinner is that something happened and it leaves you alone with God. I told you guys my testimony Monday and Tuesday, and I can tell you I needed time alone on that little island of Guam. I needed my time alone with Christ to reassess who I am, to reassess my pride, arrogance, uh, even my ambition, so that I could say, Lord, I give it all to you. Verse 10, Jesus had lifted up himself 
and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? When you spend time with Jesus, your accusers disappear. Because you no longer are paying attention to them. You become a different person. They might be talking bad about you, but they don't realize you're no longer that person. They may be bringing up what you used to do, but they don't understand you've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. He says, hath no man condemned thee? Hasn't anyone condemned thee? She says, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, here's the key verse, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He upholds the law while at the same time offering mercy and grace. That's why we read John 3 and verse 17. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let me read these and then we'll get to a few lessons and we'll be done. Desire of Ages, page 462. This was to her the beginning of a new life, a life of purity and peace. Devoted to the service of God, in the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performed a greater miracle than in healing the most grievous physical disease. I hope you guys are getting this. He cured the spiritual malady which is unto death everlasting. This penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy. Look at this. In his act of pardoning this woman and encouraging her to live a better life, the character of Jesus shines forth in the beauty of perfect righteousness. While he does not palliate sin nor lessen the sense of guilt, he seeks not to condemn, but to what? But to save. Ha! He says it here. He says, the world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope. The sinless one pities the weakness of the sinner and reaches to her a helping hand while the hypocritical Pharisees denounce Jesus bids her go and sin no more. Now I want to turn this on how we do evangelism in these last days because a lot of times we think evangelism is just telling people what we believe. Let me tell you something. The first step of evangelism is relational. You've got to have a relationship with people. You've got to actually know them. In fact, you've got to have what I call disconnected benevolence. You've got to be seeking to do good for people and asking and expecting nothing in return, not even church attendance. When you evangelize like that, people see the Christ in you before they see anything else. You've got to know folk. You got some folk, I've spent years getting to know some people before they finally came to church with me. We want a one and done. 
quick in and out. We want to just hurry up and get people into the church. Let me tell you something. Do what Jesus did. Uh, Christ's method alone, we are told in the spirit of prophecy. He dwelt among people. Every one of our churches should have a more active community service on an island like Jamaica, a more active food bank, a farmer's markets. Our churches should be connected to neighborhoods, uh, making sure people have what they need. If we do that, the truth will naturally be something they want to hear. Oh, I know that's tough to hear, but it's the truth. I, I, one, of my, one of the projects I've, I've been involved with here in Jamaica is in the beautiful little place called Trenchtown. I'll never forget the first time I went to Trenchtown to preach. And, and, the bro, and I forget the brother's name, the elder. He, he'd been around for a long time, worked in the government, one of the best Jamaican patriots I've ever met. He almost convinced me to move to Jamaica. And he was driving me around and showing me all the roads he designed and all the stuff he'd done. And when he, we got to the church, he, he said, listen, this is the, trench, this is the fa world famous Trenchtown church. And he said, I said, I, said, I, said, I said, it's safe in Trenchtown, right? I've heard some tough stuff. He said, no, man, it's perfectly safe. He said, it's, the church only been shot up two times. He said, they mistook us for one party over the other party, and we don't have no party. I said, do they think you have a party now? But we have sent, there's a beautiful little school there, and we would sponsor students, and students would go to school. And I, they flew me in, and I went to one of the fundraisers for one of the schools at the Pegasus Hotel in Kingston. And you should see these mothers from Trenchtown dressed in their finest Come to the fundraiser as their children performed, these beautiful little children from Trenchtown, singing and praising God because our Adventist school had found a way for their children to not only get an education at that young age, but fed them two meals a day and help supply their needs. It's not Christ's followers that with averted eyes turn from the earring, leaving them unhindered to pursue their downward course. We don't look down on people because they live different than us. We understand that if, it, if not for God, so go I. Look at this. She, uh, she says, oh. those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they are. I've seen that growing up in church. Some, the, the, the person who's the most strict, most harsh, most cruel, if a young person stepped out of line, they wanted to give them the most serious consequences. And when the, when the, when the wash water came out, we found out they were living more foul than all of us. Here's why. One of my favorite quotes from Ellen White. Desire of Ages, page 462, says this. I want you to get this. Men hate the sinner while they love the sin. Christ hates the sin, but loves the sinner. There's somebody in here who's struggling with sin. They think that they can't talk to anyone about it because they're ashamed and they're worried how they'll be taken. Let me tell you something. Bring it to Christ Jesus. You may be same-sex attracted. Let me tell you something. The Bible does not support that. But guess what? Jesus loves you, and in Christ, as we're going to talk about, he will give you victory over that thing. You may be promiscuous. You may be sleeping around and think there's no way you can control yourself. I want to tell you, Christ does that. The Bible and the, and the teachings of Scripture does not support that, but Jesus loves you. 
And because of that love, the scripture says it is the love of Christ that constraineth us. Ha. Desire of Ages, page 462, goes on to say, this will be the spirit of all who follow him. Christian love is slow to censure, quick to discern penitence, ready to forgive, to encourage. She says, uh, to set the wanderer in the path of holiness and stay his feet therein. That's our goal. Our goal is to do that. Ellen White says here, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, you need not give up your hope in Christ. This is for some young person here. You think you've sinned too much. You need not say it is no use of my any longer attempting to keep his commandments, for this would be placing yourself wholly on Satan's ground. She says, Satan follows you with his temptations in order that he may get you to yield and sin. Then he tells you it is of no use for you to try and you might just as well announce yourself an open transgressor of the law of God for you cannot keep his commandments. And this is what society does. They say, you know what, that's just the way you are. It's who you are. You know what's weird? We live in a time when people think they are a behavior. This is who I am and they're proud of it. But let me tell you something, That's, you're, not who, you're, not, you're not who you are because of how you behave. You are who you are because you were created in the image of God. And God wants to restore you. He wants to take your wounded heart. He wants to restore you back to his image. A lot of folk don't want to be restored. But this is what God is trying to do in the name and strength given of God. We may be obedient to all his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. We are happy in doing them. But we are often taken unawares and led into sin, and that discourages us. Shall we then say, I will no longer try to walk in the way of his commandments? Well, that is exactly the thing Satan wants you to do. And if he sees you will allow yourself to favor his temptations, he knows that his purpose is gained. Look at this. We cannot afford to do this. It is running altogether too perilous a risk. We shall never be saved in transgression of the commandments of God if we have, if we have had light as to what the commandment of his commandments comprehends. You cannot be saved trampling on God's law when you knew better. Won't happen. So how do you gain victory? Last few points. Number one, I want you to leave this week of spiritual emphasis with these points. Number one, if you're going to beat sin, you must start off by having an accurate knowledge of the character of God. What many of us think is that God is up there in heaven, that he's exacting like Zeus. He's waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you with a lightning bolt. That is not God's character. Let me give you an example. Psalm 103 says this in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Look at this. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us. Look at this. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Look at this. He says in verse 11, David says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
So far has, has he removed our transgressions from us. And then look at this, because some of us come out of homes where we don't have good fathers. We talked about that last night. Here's what he says. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. Look at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. He said, you know what, I was born this way. This is just who I am. The Bible says, listen, God knows your frame. He understands that you were made just dust. David says, I was born in sin and shaping in iniquity. I'm so glad God isn't looking to, for you to save yourself because of how you were born. He's looking to save you after he, after he has you be reborn. The second one, believe that you are forgiven. We talked about this last night. You must in sincerity believe that you are forgiven. You're going to have a victory over sin. You've got to believe that God forgave the sins you've already committed. You've got to repent your sin, confess your sin, and in repentance you must turn from it. But you've got to believe that you have been forgiven. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But look at what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? From all unrighteousness. You've got to trust that he will forgive you. The second one is this. A third one. Stop feeding the flesh. If you want victory over sin, you can't keep listening to the music that's telling you to commit fornication. You can't keep listening to music that's telling you to smoke weed. If you want victory over sin, you've got to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. So that means, this is why I told you the other night, the Advent message is such a comprehensive message. It literally helps you to avoid the influence of the world that will con uh, uh, corrupt your mind, especially your frontal lobe. Romans 8, 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is what? It's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh, they cannot please God. I have this as number three, but the number four one is this one. Pray for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, not enough Christians are praying for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to leave you with this truth. Jesus says this, for Luke 11, 10, For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will you give him a serpent? Or, for, or ask for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Look at verse 13. If you then... Being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Some people think that this is talking about prosperity. It's not. It's speaking about the indwelling power of the Holy Ghost to give you victory over sin and to live a right Christian life. The next one, fellowship and serve. That's number, actually supposed to be number five. You need to be in fellowship. The, in fact, Paul says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and be in service. The last one is this one. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You see, probation is about to close. Revelation twenty two eleven says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, 
let him be holy still. Then look what it says. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. You are not saved by your works, but you are judged by them. The secret to gaining victory over sin, I've said it multiple times this week, is not that you look at how much you mess up, how many times you fall back into it. You don't keep looking down at your sin. You don't keep looking back at your past. The secret to gaining victory over sin is to turn your eyes to Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of earth will grow strangely dim. If you want victory over sin, after this week, I challenge you to take the book of John, the gospel of John in the Bible, Read and study it with a Bible commentary and with the desire of ages. As you get to know Jesus, as you draw closer to Jesus, you will naturally, your, your inside of you will become a rejection of sin. You'll naturally be transformed. If you try and white knuckle it and bear it down, grit your teeth and say, I'm going to willpower my way through it, you will continue to fall. Stop fighting the fight of flesh. Fight the fight of faith. Get to know Jesus, trust him, believe him, and he will give you victory. That's the secret, to gaining victory over sin. And I tell you what, he will not pass you by. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.